Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Some exciting news for everyone. This is the return of da, 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 Jamie Lee Finch. <laughs> I like that little, the little horn intro there. I do that a lot. I love it. It makes me feel very special. Thank you. Yes, you should feel special. I do. I felt very special to see... When you were posting that your beautiful listeners were requesting a second episode with me, that felt really good. Yeah, yeah. I really, I, it's wonderful because there, our last episode with Jamie Lee Finch, if anyone hasn't heard it yet, um, is the most successful podcast I've put out thus far. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's really, really resonating with people. Um you know, I can imagine why, I can guess why, but mm-hmm. it gets posted a lot and everything, and mm. there's been a lot of requests to revisit. And I think a part of the reason um, I'm imagining that the requests have come is because we really touched on the history of the church, the racist roots of the church, and some of the more shocking, um, you know, history that we have in evangelicalism mm-hmm. and with our government and how we've gotten to where we are. So anyone that's interested in that, please listen to our last episode. But then we also talked about the more personal side of things with body and autonomy and sexuality and pleasure, but we sort of just skimmed at the surface. Mm-hmm. So this is going mm-hmm. to be a little bit of a deep dive into those concepts. Yes. Now that hopefully you're all warmed up to the idea that we deserve some pleasure now and that we deserve we've autonomy. Done the foreplay <laughs> aspect of this adventure with oh, one that, another. That all that, that historical foreplay. Historical that foreplay. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way I can add that to my resume. <laughs> Ooh, I like this. Yeah. Me yes. Too. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, where to begin? Mm-hmm. Um, where to begin? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's go into first some of the things you've learned in your personal journey from like being evangelical. Well, you weren't only evangelical, you dove mm-hmm. into almost every denomination mm-hmm. existing mm-hmm. and, um, and then sort of maybe how it felt to start coming out on the other side of that. If it was terrifying which is something I experienced when I was first allowing myself to consider 
that God is okay with my pleasure. Mm -hmm. And let me just say really quickly too, that when I talk about pleasure, I'm not just talking about promiscuous sex with whoever you want, wherever, however, whenever. Yep. This is about just realizing you're allowed to have pleasure in general. Mm-hmm. Because um, mm-hmm. that's a tough concept for yeah. a lot of us. Well, it is, I think, for a lot of reasons. I think our relationship to the idea of sexual pleasure often is the thing we default to thinking about when we think about pleasure and desire. And I think that has a lot to do with our, I'm going to sound like an evangelical for a second, but our culture is very <laughs> obsessed with sexuality, um, which is maybe not the way I would frame it. But I think our culture is very sexually repressed in general. And I think anytime you repress something, um, there is a heightened interest in that thing. Um, so I think it's no surprise that the automatic connotation we have when we are referring to terms and experiences like pleasure and desire we immediately think about promiscuous sex yeah um but I it's like you're saying it's so much bigger than that it's so much deeper than that and in fact with a lot of my clients that I work with even when they come into the consultation space and what they want to talk about or work through discuss is their relationship to sex and sexuality they'll point out to me very often, you know, two or three months into our time working together that shockingly we haven't talked about sex at all because we've actually talked about their overall relationship to their body, Mm. what the things were that they were taught during their formative years from, you know, parents or religion or just sources in media or peers about who your body is, what your body is for what is wanting like for you? What is, what is your relationship to expressing need? What is your relationship to even knowing what pleasure feels like or what desire looks like in, um, do you know it when you see it? Do you know what a yes feels like in your body or what a no feels like in your body? Wow. And so those things feed directly into our relationship with how we do the act of sex. So very often, I'm not going to say you can't start by talking about sex, but sometimes it's, um, a, uh, a more holistic approach by looking at the in, your entire relationship to your body and your relationship to pleasure and desire is a, is a more mm. helpful place to start. Um, but it's not surprising to me, going back to your question, like, you know, what my experience was, I think is something that probably a lot of people had the experience of, which when we were thinking about it that way, sure, I heard a lot from my religious background about, like, direct purity culture, sexual ethics, but what I think I internalized equally as much was the language of self-denial and the language of um, this expectation of suffering. Like you're supposed to suffer in your physical body so that glory will be revealed in you later. And I think as a concept that's, um, you know, detached from Christendom, detached from an authoritarian or fundamentalist aspect, that just as a spiritual principle might be something really helpful and beautiful to believe in. Like, um, It's not, you know, the aim isn't to suffer more so that you get more glory later. But if you are in the midst of suffering, it can be something that roots you down into your experience and helps you remain present and strong and stable to say, hey, maybe something good is coming. Mm -hmm. Now, that concept, though, when married to an ethic, an authoritarian ethic of self-denial and you're not allowed to listen to your own internal information and everything you need is coming from an external authoritarian source, whether it's a male pastor or a male, or like a a male God figure. Um, 
which I only point out that it's male because it's, you know, patriarchal, but, um, the hierarchy of authority that being implied male, um, whenever that idea of suffer now, um, or neglect yourself now or deny yourself now so that you can have something good later, um, it gets real close to being any, I mean, manipulative at best, abusive at worst. Um, and so I think that that those teachings combined with the whole just brass tacks. I mean, we all know it like the very simple, like don't have sex until you're in a heterosexual lifelong monogamous marriage. Don't arouse or awaken love until it's out of that, which Mm -hmm. the irony of song of Solomon is like, those folks were unmarried. Uh, Yeah. That's the funny part, but (laughs) all these things distorted and, and shoved together into this, uh, authoritarian framework of you're not allowed to listen to yourself. You have to listen to what we're telling you. I mean, of course, so many of us find ourselves on the other side of, you know, once we've left that version of religious belief, pretty confused about our relationship to pleasure and yes, again, sexual pleasure, but just pleasure and desire in general. And I think that was definitely my experience. And I honestly didn't even realize until about the last couple months. In fact, I was talking to my body worker about this just yesterday and how in the last, you know, month or two, my, my body has made it really clear to me that I was raised in the sexually restricted, you know, purity culture, sexual ethics. So I assumed that when I came out of it and started having sex and no longer believed in those ideas anymore, then the sex I was having was automatically healthy sex and automatically the sex I wanted to be having. And I realized that now that was permission. I needed to have permission to have sex, but what I hadn't quite developed yet was agency. Right. And those are two super different things. And so I'm just now at 31 after, you know, almost five years out of the evangelical paradigm, just now coming around to this awareness of, oh, what I really need to develop is agency mm-hmm. related to my own sexuality and all my other desires. Okay. I love that. There's a lot to unpack there. Yes. We will unpack all I of it. I was that. like, as I'm talking, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going down 16 different rabbit trails, but that's how my brain works. No, so. it's, it's great. Um, yeah. So let's dive way deeper into Mm -hmm. the concept of agency. And then just to piggyback off of what you're saying historically, and the reason I think a conversation like this is crucially important is because these teachings are alive and well in certain circles. And it's so disheartening to see because Mm -hmm. for every bit of progress we make, and you and many other people have talked about how historically Christendom was about to have like a major mm. beautiful awakening in the 70s, like aligned mm. not with culture, scary culture like you're talking about, but actually catching up with the times in a really beautiful divine way where mm. people could be more holistic and happy and, you know, serving God with whole fullness for mm-hmm. truly instead of compartmentalized and scared. But, um, you know, with the 80s and Reaganism and everything, everything went crashing. Yeah. Yeah. Everything Mm -hmm. went in the opposite direction. And we're kind of standing at that same ground right now Mm -hmm. because we're doing the work we're doing. And then there's someone like Dale Partridge. Are you Mm -hmm. familiar? (laughs) Am I familiar? I think I get tagged in his posts, both on Instagram (laughs) and Facebook, by other people. 
like either wanting to know my opinion or just wanting to be like, get mad at this with me. Probably <laughs> like three or four times a week still right. now. I mean, yeah. me too. And that's always horrifying. Like someone just told me mm-hmm. that I liked one of his posts, which was obviously an accident. And I was like, oh my God, oh my how God. many people saw that I like that? Oh. Um, and it was one about, you know, how us, us dumb little ladies just don't know how to teach ourselves the Bible. And you I know. was going to guess. Like without knowing anything, you said when you said, and it was about, I almost just said submission because I think that's all he talks about. Well, yeah. And this is a bold statement and whatever. I'm, I'm still praying on how to approach the video I'm going to make about him. But mm. like, but when you said it's um, at best manipulation, at worst abuse, yeah. that's really what I see. I'm like, yeah, sorry. I just see a manipulative, abusive personality yep. under the guise of religion yeah. and, I have a lot of questions when there are men who feel the need to talk about how women should be submitting to them. Like all that, like that's their main message. I am, I'm curious what's going on underneath that. Right. It just feels like there's no, I don't know. You know what I mean? That just feels concerning. And Mm -hmm. the reason it looks so manipulative to me is because an abuser and Mm -hmm. I have experience with Mm -hmm. an abuser. um, What they do is gaslight you and convince you that every bit of pain they're putting through you through is actually so painful for them. Yes. And um, you know, like I, you know, I wasn't getting like beat up or anything, but it's like a father that's like hitting you hurts mm-hmm. me more than it hurts mm-hmm. you. And it's like, Absolutely. no, it hurts the child. More, Absolutely. Actually. I mean, and- I found that to be true in my last relationship because mm-hmm. it was, it was not physically abusive for the majority of it. There were some instances that were kind of concerning, but the, the emotional and mental abuse and manipulation that was present. Uh Oh, Hi, buddy. Yeah, I know you're upset about that, too. I know. Um, There was this undercurrent of he would behave poorly towards me. I would react to him behaving poorly towards me. Then he would just cover himself in all this guilt and shame. And then it would turn into me having to emotionally caretake him because of how, quote, bad he felt about what he did to me. So we spent about eight seconds on my pain. And then we were back to caring about his pain (laughs) from his reaction to the pain he caused me. So it is that there is this like really uncomfortable swirl that you get stuck in where, like you said, they try and convince you that the pain they're causing you is actually more painful for them. Yeah. That's it's, that's such a confusing experience. Yeah. That's what the, the post was just like, you know, your submission is hard, but you know, imagine how hard it is for men to have to, you, you know, serious? take on the burden of teaching a woman, you know, and all this stuff. And imagine it's like, how hard it is for us at the top. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough up here. I, well, okay. Get, let us try it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll let you know if that's really that bad. Oy vey. So I only jump into that to be like, yes, this is why these conversations are so important because they're still alive and well in certain circles now. And we have to continue speaking out against it. And I'll continue biblically defending the principle. And anyone that just didn't see it, I did a video on progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. Will will progressive Christians go to hell? Um, They really touch on some of the myths about what we're doing because it's not about being promiscuous and not giving a damn about it. It's actually about diving into church history and, and allowing for the Holy spirit. And Jamie and I might not be aligned on the wording Mm -hmm. of this, but myself as a Christian, I'd say we're trying to align with the move of the Holy spirit into a much better world, a much better place Mm -hmm. for all sexes Mm -hmm. versus, you know, I mean, to not, I don't know. 
in Dale's case, or maybe not Dale specifically, but in a lot of men's case, that brings a lot of anxiety for them too. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Like an abusive person or manipulative person is in pain, mm-hmm. even though, even mm-hmm. if that shouldn't be the focus of what's happening. Right. But all sexes are in pain over these patriarchal yes. ideas. That's a great way to put that. And we need to yeah. move forward. Mm-hmm. And if a woman is not in pleasure and sexual pleasure, how much pleasure can her partner be in? It, I think a lot of, uh, sexual and erotic experiences at that point become about performance and that oh that's just such a it's a painful thing when there's so much else possible yeah 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 all right so that's enough of the uh, backstory of why i think it's important to sit here let's get in talking about dale (laughs) let's get off of dale right now um let's talk about how to put these principles into practice Mm -hmm. and how it looks And I'll just quickly, you know, first say, please, everyone, keep open hearts and minds because I think it's completely biblically sound to say Mm -hmm. that God loves all of his children and that, you know, in the Song of Solomons, for example, like there's a season and time for everything. And that includes happiness alongside Mm -hmm. of sadness and pleasure alongside of pain. Mm -hmm. We always have this dichotomy. So completely abstaining from all pleasure always forever mm-hmm. with the concept of one day you'll have it in heaven or one day you'll deserve it or something yeah. is just robbing yourself of what we're meant to be doing on this earth. Yeah. So let's talk about how to calibrate, you know, inviting that into our lives, what's right and wrong and how to like figure out how to mm. get rid of some of these toxic principles and create permission and agency. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, there's a couple different avenues to go down with that. And I guess uh, the starting place would kind of be determined by, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but so I think about, you know, you even referencing we're in a bit different places as far as like maybe what we would say our beliefs are. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is in thinking about permission and agency, someone like me who is not, doesn't identify as Christian or even Christian adjacent at all might seemingly have less of a hang up on my felt sense of permission and agency towards embracing pleasure. Um, because you know, to really, really, really oversimplify, I'm not having, I'm not concerned about balancing the way I live and move through the world to a like biblical ethic in some way, or to an ethic that the community I gather with the religious community I gather with has agreed upon together. So I bring that up to say that there's, I'm sure lots of people, probably maybe the vast majority of people that listen to your podcast and consume your content that would probably be a little bit more like you who somewhere along the spectrum might identify as Christian, Christian adjacent and are, are trying to figure out how to live and move through the world, creating a healthy sexual ethic, a healthy ethic towards pleasure while also no recognizing within themselves that maybe the person of Jesus is really compelling or um, the Bible as a sacred text matters deeply to them or the community, the religious community that they gather with that is Christian or Christian adjacent is deeply important to them. And they're sorting through all these things together. Mm. So I, for me, it's, it's, it's not that it's hard to know how to answer that. What I will say is that if that, if you're in that second group, There's a lot of people that I not only um, trust and like consume the content of, but also like many of them that I'm close friends with um, who have done a much better job maybe speaking to that um, 
internal conflict. I don't want to assume it's an internal conflict, but I think for a lot of people it no, is. I mean, like, that's a fair if assumption. Were, <laughs> yeah, if you were taught this evangelical authoritarian, you know, ethic of no pleasure at all and you want to hang on to Jesus and you want to hang on to the Christian scripture and you want to hang on to your faith community and you want to orient yourself to pleasure too. There's all, there can be a lot of internal hangups that cause that conflict. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some folks who are speaking to that really powerfully. Um, The one I would most highly recommend right now is someone that actually just wrote a book about this, which is perfect timing. Um, His name is Matthias Roberts, and he just wrote a book, um, just published a book called Beyond Shame. Mm. I think the subtitle is Creating a Healthy Sexual Ethic on Your Own Terms. I think that's what it is. Even if that's not what it is, it's definitely called Beyond Shame. Um, I've recommended it to so many of my clients and so many and and in so many online spaces um, because Matthias actually is a Christian and he's a queer Christian and so progressive Christian. Amazing. And writes from this perspective of creating a healthy sexual ethic on your own terms and also from this, um, I guess maybe the metaphor would maybe be from inside of a space that I don't occupy. And so when I'm speaking with or working with my clients who don't occupy that space, I have a lot of maybe tools or ideas or recommendations that I could bring to them that I don't may, I don't want to say that I don't have to be concerned about, but what might not be happening inside of them is them having to figure out, well, is God going to be okay with this? Because Mm. they might not believe in God anymore. And so Matthias speaks to that experience really powerfully and really successfully. Um, also, uh, coming out very soon, my friend Kevin Garcia, um, (laughs) yes, they're wonderful. And their book, Bad Theology Kills is coming out. Um, I have, they just sent it to me today, so I haven't read it yet. I have read Matthias's, so I can't speak directly to the content, but I know that a lot of what Kevin deeply cares about is this um, marriage between um, Christianity, progressive Christianity, and the sacredness of sexuality, um, deeply affirming. And so, and just with a title like Bad Theology Kills, I mean, you can assume like this yeah. is for a very specific audience. Um, so those would be some really wonderful resources to start with um also dr tina Shermer sellers um, yeah i'm gonna interview her soon actually. oh are you really yeah. she's wonderful she wrote the foreword to matthias's book okay. and so she does a lot of this kind of she lives in this intersection too of recognizing the toxicity of the purity culture sexual ethic but then again this i think this overarching idea of you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm. um for lack of a better <laughs> I, I keep saying metaphor that right too. now <laughs> even though there's a baby in the room we're not throwing you anywhere um <laughs> But I also, again, this, this sucks as a metaphor for this, but like you can get rid of the baby too, if you want, like you, like (laughs) really like you can throw out the core foundation of what you used to believe if you want to, but you don't have to either. So that's a really long winded, even just like preface to even going into what my perspective or answer would be on how to center pleasure and how to reorient yourself to what your body is telling you about desire and, and, um, all of those things, because I'm absolutely not only coming at it from a perspective of, um, non religious, but, um, or like not faith based or Christian adjacent, but I'm also a witch. So there's that too. And which is, um, our experience of our relationship to, so I've said this before in another podcast, which, which is actually intentionally work with the energy of desire. 
Um, and so the idea, and this is something Starhawk talks about, is desire, if you follow desire to its end, it doesn't lead to self-indulgence. It just leads to self-awareness. And that was a really hard thing for me to, not consciously hard, but internally difficult for me to realize was true because the ethic I was raised with regarding desire was if you give into it, it'll swallow you whole, mm. you'll completely disappear and become a you, yeah, you'll fall down that slippery sin. slope. You're uh -huh. a slave. You'll be a slave to your own desires. I think it might even say that in that book. And so recognizing that my desires actually have information for me and that information, or let me put it in the way I feel, like I speak most often, my body has information for me all the time. And desires, cravings, wantings, um, that deserves to be information just as much as other somatic or emotional experiences. Um, like... Uh, pain or um, heartache, grief, um, physical sensations in my body, like a pain or, um, or an imbalance in a certain area in my body. All of these things are information and so are my desires. So are my literal cravings. Um, and I mean that in a relationship to like food cravings, but other cravings as well. And so the reason why witches work with the energy of desire rather than resist it is because of this understanding that this is information if I resist it, I don't get the information. I don't get what this attempt at communication is trying to um, trying to hand me so that I can understand about myself. So um, there's definitely, um, as far as modalities and like practices, gosh, it's hard to even know where to be. I'm trying to like even think through like what's been powerful for me in the last couple of years. I think the biggest thing is um, a lot of, body work, like anything body centric, body focused. I think my relationship to knowing that I even have a body that has information for me, um, has changed now that I've started trying to live in that body more often and, um, try to be in relationship with my body. Um, I know just using sex as an example, I know that the majority of the sex that I had in my life before realizing, oh, my body's a person, I can be in relationship with her and I want to know what information she has for me. A lot of my sexual experiences were deeply dissociated. Yeah. So were a lot of my experiences eating food. So were a lot of my experiences moving my body or at the very least, if they weren't dissociated, they were rooted in shame and self-hatred. Where I was trying to punish my body by way of exercise or movement, um, which is just a really painful cycle to exist in. So I think a lot has changed... I know a lot has changed since I've started um, working with these ethics of self-compassion, self-curiosity, self-connection, self-communication, um, and centering my body as a person that I can be in relationship and speak to and hear from. Um, and probably one of the most powerful areas that I've been able to continue to connect with my body is through like somatic bodywork modalities. Um, so therapeutic modalities or, um, I mean, anything from like an intense trauma therapy to like, um, yoga, like there's definitely ways in which you just remember you have a body, you are in your body. Um, I feel like gives permission to your body. It feels like to me that when I connect with my body through movement or breath work or otherwise, it's like, I'm sitting down at the table with her and telling her, Hey, I'm here and I'm ready to talk. I love that. I think that, I mean, I do want to address how difficult some of these things will be for certain listeners mm -hmm. and myself included, because 
when I think about how you just said in the beginning of the conversation that you experienced permission and then agency, I feel like I did it in reverse. I had to fully release myself of caring whether or not I had permission or not and then explore more agency and what it felt like to just be free with that. That's it. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I don't even think I got permission until like two years ago or something. And, and, you know, I still struggle with it sometimes Mm because it still lingers because these things are so deeply embedded in us and everything. But, um, even you discussing yoga too, there's still drama around whether or not yoga is sinful because it's Mm -hmm. supposedly worshiping gods and it's demonic, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of times I was told in my old church spaces that doing yoga opened up my body to be inhabited by demons. (laughs) It's crazy. As I think the ironic thing, truly, the more deeply I go with my religious beliefs Mm -hmm. in Christianity, Christ consciousness, et cetera, Mm. is realizing that my church and many other churches will say the devil's worship or like whispering in your ear Mm. when, and he's convincing you that sex is okay or Mm. that homosexuality is okay. And I'm like, you know, you know what the devil is actually whispering is you're not allowed to be okay with your body. You're not allowed to practice something that makes you feel good. You're not allowed to Mm. say no or to say yes in specific situations by listening to what your body is screaming at you. Don't Mm. listen to your body. Ignore Mm -hmm. your body. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the whisper of Satan because if the Bible says look at the fruit, the fruit of ignoring our bodies is – literally cancerous Mm. to a lot of people cancer Mm -hmm. sickness other illness can come from us ignoring the things that our body Mm -hmm. is saying Mm -hmm. so to me realizing that what we've been taught that we're in these disgusting vile flesh machines Mm -hmm. that we have to just bang into submission until we finally get to heaven and we're not disgusting anymore yes (laughs) it's like no if god put us on this earth in these vile flesh machines that maybe they're not so vile that maybe the point of Mm -hmm. living this spiritual life is to figure out how to use this body in the most beautiful way and align it with our spiritual being to such a high degree that they're both in beautiful functioning order with one another why did god put me in a body if they didn't want me to know her Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't understand why I wouldn't just be, if my spirit was supposed to be the most important part about me, why did that spirit become embodied? Why right. did the, why did Christ consciousness, Christ consciousness become embodied? There's, I mean, there's, you have to, you have to, if you're going to have like an honest, um, you know, well, I guess <laughs> I was going to say like an honest kind of like, um, I can't think of the word, but if you're, if you're really going to like dig down into your own faith or why you believe what you believe. You have to wrestle with this idea of what do we do with bodies or like if bodies are bad or supposed to just be resisted, just be punished, just be um, classified as being something like dark and dirty and sinful. Why do we have them in the first place? Why does everything that happens to us happen in and through our bodies? Like if there's intelligent design, why did, why did God do that? And why did God put themselves into Mm -hmm. a body and show up that way? And so I think it's like, it's such an interesting, the, the fact that we can sit here and recognize that as being true. And yet I know that the religion of my upbringing never once, at least not obviously to me, wrestled with that idea. It was just this 
implied and overtly expressed understanding I was supposed to adhere to that my body deserved to be ignored or punished Mm. or resisted. And I just, you know, it's, I was talking to my body worker yesterday, like while I was on her table and she was, she does like a lot of really deep connective tissue work because there's some really good research, um, showing how, as far as like energy medicine and energy work goes, um, which maybe some people would think is pretty squirrely, but like (laughs) science is, uh, it's important to pay attention to. That's yeah. what I'll say. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a lot of people who can explain it a lot better than me as to why that's, this is pretty legit. Um, and I know that from my body worker, it is both hands-on and hands-off, um, my multiple body workers. And um, trauma-informed research shows us that what happens to us doesn't just happen to us in our heads. It happens to us in our bodies. It happens to us in our muscles and our connective tissue all the way down to a cellular level. Um And so when you are being, when your body's being worked through and worked with intentionally from someone who has that understanding, um, there is the ability to have emotional release of trauma in your physical body. Um, in fact, there is a moment where she kind of dug into a specific area on my hips and the psoas muscles, which historically just hold, they're like the seat of your emotions and on my left side. And just the moment she touched me, I just burst into tears. And there's nothing going on in my brain. I wasn't thinking about something sad. It was just realizing, oh, she has stored so much emotion right there. So anyway, um, she being your body. my body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so anyway, I'm, I'm laying on her table and she's discussing with me what she's doing as she's doing it. And we're also just kind of having other conversations because um, she's she read my book and um, we've had some discussions about it. And um, she said something. She was like, you know, I'm really curious uh, well, I don't know if this is in my book or not. It might've been on a podcast, but anyway, she's like, <laughs> I'm really curious about this thread that you mentioned that you were trying to draw between purity culture, sexual ethics and autoimmune disease. Mm. And she was like, I heard you talk about that once. And I'm, I'm curious, have you found any empirical research on that at all or found anything to support that hypothesis? And I was like, no, <laughs> there's like nothing. Oh. But to me, but it's something I, I want to, she's like, you should work on building that. You should work on actually trying to gather that data and work with people to help you gather that data and run some of those. Um, I mean, this is a paraphrase. I'm probably saying this wrong, but run those tests and see, you know, try <laughs> yeah. and figure that out the correlation. Because what, what I told her is I was like, yeah, it was interesting to me that I couldn't find anything and I can't find anything uh, so potentially supporting that theory because when I first started researching this stuff back in 2016, I remember reading, it was, it was truly this simple. I read something in my research for something else. Um, and I read something that said, put this language to the experience of autoimmunity, which is that your immune system starts attacking an area of your body. And for the most part, you know, Western medicine doesn't really have an explanation as to why certain autoimmune conditions happen when they happen. Um, all we know is that your immune system, this part of your body, suddenly decided that a different part of your body was its enemy. Wow. So your body, a part of your body is deciding, basically your body is deciding it's its own enemy. I remember reading that explanation, that way that was verbalized, and immediately thinking of everything I was taught growing up, being socialized as female, being born as female in my Southern Baptist white evangelical church that, and so 
I was explaining this to her and I was on her table and she was like, well, what kinds of things were you taught? And I was like, well, I mean, it's the whole, like, you have to cover up your own body. Your body is dangerous. It's dangerous for boys to observe and to see, but it's also dangerous for you because all of this sexual sin that could happen happens in your body. There's this idea that boys get this weird permission to just, oh, we, we assume they're sexual and that's bad. They have to contain it, control it, but girls shouldn't be sexual at all. Mm-hmm. And I, but you are, that's the spoiler. You just are. <laughs> um, and so you have to make that part of yourself an enemy to your own self in order to survive in that paradigm. And so it was just this immediate correlation in my mind of, oh, that language sounds familiar of my body deciding it's its own enemy. And then when you run the numbers or you look at the numbers and the research on who predominantly autoimmunity, like the body's autoimmunity predominantly occurs in, I think at least back in 2016, when I looked up the statistic, it was 80% in women's bodies and 20%. In men's bodies and there's just something to that and I hope that someday I can figure out even where to begin to study that but there I think this is very much in line with what you're talking about of, of there is there's a direct correlation between our psychological experience of how to live and move and be in our bodies and the stories our bodies begin to tell the somatic physiological experience and if I tell my physical body she's my enemy long enough she might start agreeing with me like there really is this um and it's not her fault and it's not my fault that's the thing is I don't want anyone to hear this coming from like an ableist kind of um perspective which is not when I adhere to which is like oh it's your personal responsibility like Dr. Gabor Mate who wrote when the body says no he addressed this in his book and how when he first started talking about this mind-body connection and how our bodies essentially tell the truth about what's going on in our psychology he encountered from a lot of other doctors um, kind of this reception of oh you're telling patients it's their fault that they're sick and he's like no I'm giving patients the permission to acknowledge that maybe something uh, impactful something um, painful, something adverse occurred that might be unresolved. That's what I'm doing. I'm not saying it's your fault, but what I am saying is if we can dig down into maybe learning about what happened, we might be able to have some sense of agency and responsibility in healing it. That might not happen every time. It honestly doesn't have to happen every time, but it's an avenue by which we can come into more information about what's happening in our bodies. It might not be the only avenue, and there are such things as genetic conditions that just happen and just occur. Right. But I think at the very least we have to get curious about the things we were taught and told about ourselves, about our bodies, we have to get curious through this trauma-informed lens of um, how has my, how does my psychology impact my physiology? And that has to be related to religious trauma and the things we're taught inside of these faith spaces. Yeah, I mean, everything you're saying is fascinating, first of all, and really resonates and sounds right. But also, you and Linda K. Klein both talk about how there's a brand new diagnosis for religious mm-hmm. trauma syndrome. Mm-hmm. Is that what mm-hmm. it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, scientific and, you know, on, on, on paper at this point. Well, to be fair, they're still trying to. It's not in the DSM. Um, oh, okay. But it. It directly mirrors uh, 
CPTSD is a complex post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder. So basically religious trauma looks, religious trauma syndrome looks just like PTSD is right. what they're studying. Mm-hmm. And then we already have, at least on the books with PTSD, that your body obviously has extremely strong reactions yes. to yes. things that have happened, events that have occurred. Yeah, there's an unresolved impact that's been created in yeah. your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. so it totally makes sense that that would lead to autoimmune disorder, mm-hmm. especially when something has gone untreated, unacknowledged yeah. for years and years and years. Like. 60 year old women that haven't been having consent with their mm-hmm. sexuality with their husband and what that's going to do to be storing in their body mm-hmm. year after year mm-hmm. the compartmentalization of that yes. I can't even imagine the trauma within the yes. body yeah there's just no way that the information about what's happened to us wouldn't be stored in our bodies I just I mean and this sounds so almost silly but it's something I talk about with my clients all the time like your body has been there for everything that's ever happened to you mm. like it's happened to them too like he experienced it as well she was also there and when something has made an impact on us psychologically oftentimes we think oh I work through it I feel better I forgive I let it go and our bodies might not be on the same page with us about that and so that's why when adverse or traumatic experiences, including bad religious teaching, um, creates an unresolved impact in our physical bodies. That's why it just, it is, it's really wise to seek methods and modalities of creating a resolution. And again, that can be anything from, um, like trauma therapeutic techniques to specific body work, um, things like, you know, energetic medicine, myofacial release, massage therapy, anything that digs down into your body. Um, and it can also be, again, maybe more simple things like breath work and mindfulness and yoga. Mm -hmm. So I don't want anyone to hear this either and say, like, if you don't have the money to, you know, hire a sexological body worker or a massage therapist like you're just screwed like that's not the case like our bodies absolutely are on our team and they want to be on the same page with us they want to communicate communicate with us successfully and sometimes it really can just be as simple as slowing down and increasing our mindfulness and hearing what they have to say my I mean among all the body works and therapeutic techniques and everything the most impactful um, modality that I have in relationship with my body is literally just in the midst of a heightened emotion or maybe accessing a memory or basically becoming aware of an unresolved experience in my physical body, going into my room and kneeling down in front of my mirror and holding eye contact with myself and talking through what's coming up with myself, releasing the emotion, crying, screaming, punching has been really helpful sometimes like whatever the emotion is that needs to be released literally releasing physically that emotion through my physical body and then writing about it processing through it and writing about it and that I mean I feel like oh my gosh it's a huge one you're remind I've never even thought about this but I would always just naturally go dance my ass off yeah naked in my house by myself Mm -hmm. if my heart was broken yeah I never put two and two together but it's like okay yeah that was my body yep releasing that trauma yes yeah have you ever seen a bird fly into a window yeah and get a little bit stunt like it falls to the ground it's 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 frozen for a bit it had a traumatic experience a traumatic impact upon you know hitting the window and actually it's very sad (laughs) but then when the bird finally stops being still and it gets up what does it do it shakes out its feathers Mm. it literally shakes its whole entire body and resolves, moves the traumatic impact through its body before it flies away. 
Mm. Like um, there's um, again, like Peter Levine's written a lot about this, about how you see this expressed in the animal kingdom, which I think it's really funny that we're like, we've forgotten that we're animals and we like really care about decorum now. And I was thinking, I was writing about this yesterday, actually about how decorum, like our, our desire to just like be proper and acceptable and our commitment to decorum is actually, I think, um, contributed to our dissociation oh, like yeah. it really because like what we need to do is is dance and yell and scream and emote and do the things that we observe animals to do when they've experienced a physical uh potentially traumatic experience something physically traumatic has happened they all like shake out their muscles and they move and they vocalize and they you know i don't know if saying emote is the right way to say it but like it certainly seems like they emote they feel something intensely externally overtly obviously and so many of us are just like I'm gonna be proper and just and I won't even shed a tear or I'll tell myself I'm fine much less screaming about what happened I started martial arts training this summer and it was it's been so fascinating not only just being able to like kick and punch and make impact and like move that energy through my body, but also vocalize. They mm. want you to like grunt and growl and yell when you're making contact with these pads and the combination of the somatic experience of moving emotion and energy through my body. And then also being able to just open my mouth and yell about it. I'm like, I don't get to yell anywhere else in my life. And it just, it's, yeah. So what you're saying about like whenever I experience intense heartache, I would just dance. Like it's so it's so good for you. It's so good. You've got me thinking about birth too, because when yes. I gave birth, I was actually fascinated with the thought that <laughs> I was thinking about how we always are like keeping up with appearances and pretending we're so sophisticated and exactly what you're saying, how we've fancied ourselves so far away from the animal kingdom in an arrogant way, when in reality. Mm-hmm. That just means that we've lost so much of our mm. core and who we were meant to be, our connection yeah. to the earth and its beauty, yes. our connection to being able to, like, how many people can even keep a garden alive yes. anymore? It's just yeah. like we've become pathetic, not better than mm. anyone else. But I was thinking, I think I said to my partner that it's so funny that we haven't by this time invented a pod where a baby just forms <laughs> and then this, like, perfect pristine woman gets to take it out of the pod like Melania Trump or something like imagining her like someone that really has their game face on at all times Mm. imagining that woman on the table legs sprayed open body about to like part everything going at the completely out of her control and birth is this really uncontrollable situation like you have a birth plan and they're like well you have to stay completely open because literally anything can happen can happen so that was just wild to me I was like this is the last truly animal thing I feel like we consider acceptable in our society mm-hmm. and wow that's fascinating to yeah, think about it was just trippy because I'm like there is no sophistication in this at all and it is the most beautiful wow. thing in the world yeah and it's too bad we don't allow so much more of that in our lives yeah because I hear you say that and I also think about the women uh well not just I mean people of all genders that I know that are birth workers and anything like doulas midwives Um, and are super passionate about exactly what you're talking about and how I've learned a lot from them about um, 
kind of uh, a lot of the attempts at kind of the sterilization of the process Mm -hmm. and um, learning a lot from my sister too about the multiple births that she experienced and how um, her first one, there was a lot she didn't know and she didn't know she was allowed to advocate for. And so a lot just happened to her and happened to her body. Mm, And then in her second pregnancy, second birth, um, she was having twins. And so there's all this legality of what you can and cannot do regarding twins. So no home birth, no, there's a bunch of different things. I don't want to like misspeak. Um, but then her third, um, was, which, you know, was kind of a surprise actually. And the (laughs) first one that was conceived naturally, um, the first two were in vitro, um, because they'd had some trouble getting pregnant. And so with her third, she had all this knowledge and all this experience and she fiercely advocated for herself in every single step of the way and then gathered a team of people around her like a midwife and a doula for like the way in which she was able to advocate for herself to do birth the way she wanted to because she'd had this experience that 10 years ago it was um and I I hope like this I don't want this to be shaming to anybody because if you feel like you have agency and you choose to have a birth in a hospital and get an epidural and all those things that's amazing because you chose it she didn't know she could choose that or something else she just thought you were just told what to do Mm. and so by the time she had her third birth she was like I know what I want Mm -hmm. and no one is gonna tell me that I'm not gonna have the thing that I know that I want um so my sister's actually this is apparently like a really fierce thing she did she did a vaginal birth after two c-sections oh wow she she was in which they say you're not allowed or can't do and they oh. tried to tell my sister that and she wasn't having she it. was she's a polite <laughs> woman that would not have said fuck off but like um, in her own way she was like this is my body i'm going to do what i want to do and what i know i need to do and so that watching that trajectory of her ability to just center i'm hearing from myself what i know that i need i feel kind of emotional even talking about this because i know it was so impactful for her mm. and so hearing from birth workers and hearing from people like my sister because it's not an experience that I've had in my own body but hearing about the way in which a lot of the options and agency um is hidden from many people wanting to give birth um and then people coming into and and that to say there's this um almost centering of the sterilization and the mechanization of birth whereas with what you're saying it's so beautiful because it's such a raw it's funny to just call it a human thing it's the oldest fucking thing we've ever done it's such a raw experience Mm -hmm. um and it's so interesting how likely probably capitalism and patriarchy and all these other objectifying systems have tried to make it something not as raw and not as animalistic slash human as it actually really is. Yeah. It's not dignified. Yeah. I think that's why Melania came to my head. I'm like, why did that come to my head? But I think it's just cause like you don't see her emote too much. You don't see yeah. her really like put her heart right. on her sleeve too much. And you're just like, wow, I wonder what she looked like in yeah. that situation or like anyone in that, you know, kind of, same personality space I guess um this is a good transition I think into defining explaining agency Mm. what does that really mean that is such a good question because I feel like I'm working through that internally with my own self right now like what does my agency look like and how does that differ from permission I feel like oh I just got a just got an analogy that just dropped into my head so permission is like you go to the grocery store and you have, you have money in your, in your pocket and you walk into the, don't know why a salad dressing is coming to mind, but you walk into the salad dressing aisle uh-huh. and permission is like, I'm a, I, I drove myself here. 
I, I am here because I'm going shopping for something specific. I have a recipe and I need to make some, I need to get some salad dressing and I have money in my pocket and I'm able to buy it. Permission is like everything is kind of set up for you to be able to do the thing that you need to do. And agency is walking into the aisle and looking at all the options and knowing the one that you want. And I feel like that piece is the piece that's been missing for me for, again, not just a lot of my relationship to sexuality and sexual experiences, but just in general mm-hmm. of just this overarching idea of what do I want or even what do I need in a moment? Um, and, you know, I, I feel like I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm definitely, this is maybe a weird thing to say that I'm a rule follower, but I'm like my, I follow my own rules. Like I stick to a script. It's my script. I created it for myself, but I stick to it. So uh-huh. this idea, going back to this like analogy, like I've got that, I'm, I'm driving to the grocery store. I've got them. I've budgeted. I'm walking in. Like I'm, you know, I've got it scheduled exactly. Like I've got it all figured out. And that's my permission is like, cool, I'm here. But yet I'm trying to call that freedom. Like as if that will get me <laughs> to the point where I know what I have a taste for. Mm. As if all of those things I've structured and put into place will allow me to be in the place where I'm standing in the aisle and I know what my, the flavor is that I'm looking for. And I give myself that, you know, I want to say permission again, but. I have the agency to center what I want in that experience and say, this is the one I'm going to choose. And I feel like that is something that, like I said, has shown up in many areas, but has shown up in my relationship to sexuality. I didn't really realize, um, it's something that came up a lot in some kind of painful to think about ways now, but in my last relationship in, um, asking for certain things and that not being received well and then learning like, oh, that's unsafe to ask for mm. um, or asking for things, hearing it, hearing what I wanted denied or just or, like either hearing no or me saying no and that turning into something that I was then like punished for. Um, and so, I mean, that's a painful thing to talk about. But I think I it when I talk about it really honestly, it helps me have compassion for myself as to why agency has been so hard to learn because yeah. it was not only hard coming from the background I came from, but then the you're not allowed to have agency was reinforced in my most intimate relationship. Um, again, as it relates to sexuality. So I think in the last few months that I've been out of that relationship, I have slowly been inching towards recognizing my own agency. And it's cool because my body worker was telling me yesterday, I saw her back in November and there was a specific area in my left inner thigh of like this kind of energetic medium, um, that like, I guess maybe it's down in the muscles. Again, I'm not super well-versed in her <laughs> language for this, but what I remember her telling me is there, she felt that I was shut down. This The energy was shut down in a certain area of my body that related to sexual shame. Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> You're like, no duh. Yep. And I, on her table yesterday, she was like, it's open. She was like, I can tell, I can feel, not just feel in your physical body and how your body's relaxing, how, you know, um, she's checking for movement in certain areas and digging down and she's checking for scar tissue. Like she's like, not only can I feel that your physical body has been releasing as you've been doing this healing work, but energetically certain lines are open in your body that were not open before. It felt so good to hear someone say like, what you're doing is working. Yeah. You're making progress. Because in my brain, (laughs) there are days like just a couple weeks ago, I was like, Oh, just having such a hard day and thinking of all the pain in this last relationship. And I was just like, sobbing in my bathtub and felt like I couldn't function. And I'm like, Best place to sob, months. by the way. <laughs> so nice. You don't have to worry about getting, like, you're, you're in water. Just let water come out of your <laughs> exactly. face. And you do feel kind of held. You're kind of like in a womb. It's very nice. <laughs> um, 
And it's days like that where I feel like, oh, am I making any progress at all? Um, is this is this working? Am I ever going to feel better? Am I ever going to feel healed or whole? Or am I ever going to have like a relationship to what I want? I feel like I've been fighting so much for this. And so I just felt so much gratitude and affection for my body yesterday when my body worker, her name's Ellen, I'll just call her Ellen. Um, when Ellen was telling me, she's like, it's working. What you're doing is working. And paraphrasing Ellen, like she agrees with you. Your mm-hmm. body agrees with you. And she's in this with you, healing alongside you, healing with you. So I really, I have more questions than I do answers as far as my own relationship to agency and how to develop agency right now. Cause it's been kind of unnerving. Like I thought I was real good at this and I was like, Oh wait, that's just permission. This is a totally different experience. I actually really don't know how to figure out what I want and how to ask for it. Well, again, it's so funny because I felt the exact opposite. Like I always felt like I had this little brewing darkness. I would have called it brewing underneath me, telling me what I wanted, the kind of sexual relationship I wanted to cultivate with someone Mm -hmm. how I wanted to express myself in that way and that was like my dark self you know telling me that I wanted these things and now I'm inviting you know in my relationship specific things that I've always wanted because I'm finally in like a safe space to do so with a safe person that loves me do you still call that part of yourself your dark self like what do you who do you think that is no not at all no that was just my Christian I'm Mm. writing a memoir right now as well and like I I had this fantasy of this like dark I kind of look like you, actually. And oh, like hey. this- <laughs> Dark hair, strong bangs, red lips, exactly. a Jezebel. It's a, it's a, it's a it is. strong Jezebel spirit. Exactly. <laughs> it was my Jezebel spirit. Like, I described in an old journal that I'd found this, like, brooding, sexy woman that oh lived off of, like, coffee and cigarettes and, like... <laughs> And I, I don't, don't even smoke, smoke anymore, cigarettes. But other than yeah. that, you're pretty dead on. <laughs> Very brilliant. And um, and then she would get to have you know completely detached sex and didn't care about anything. And mm. you know, and that's obviously not the objective anymore. But like, yeah. she was just a completely emancipated woman that didn't need anyone except herself. And uh. that was this sinful Jezebel spirit that was wow. trying to get inside of me. Wow. Whereas now I'm like the healthier like that I feel about it. And I did explore that woman. I was that woman for a minute and I don't regret those experiences, but that's what I would call my tramp page phase. And like, (laughs) what a term. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I did become her in a way (laughs) for sure. Um, except being unaffected and Mm. not crying and being really powerful Mm. through harming myself so deeply is not what happened. Yeah. And, and dependency is not, bad and interdependency and uh, oh man that idea that because I so get it um that idea that what you are were hoping to like aim for and arrive at was this idea of like I'm so independent I don't need anyone you know what I was wanting secure detachment or attachment yeah I wanted to be a securely attached relationship person what do you feel like (laughs) your attachment had been like before that What's the one? Anxiety? Anxious. Anxious attachment. Well, that makes so much sense that then you're like, oh, this idea of who I want to be and how I want to be in the world is more detached. Like, that's a beautiful motivation. Now, arriving at a fully detached place doesn't sound great. Yeah, because then it's paired with compartmentalization, which is never good. Yeah, Yeah. and a lot of dissociation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's actually something that, so the book, Attached, 
And something I felt like it really helped me with was recognizing that um, I think for someone like me, I have I I skew more towards disorganized attachment. I'm fighting for secure, but historically deeply disorganized attachment, mm-hmm. um, which my therapist and I have discussed. Where she's like, "Well, considering your childhood, that makes sense." <laughs> so again, let's extend compassion for how I got to here and how we all kind of got to where we are. But and these be- are the three options, right? Really quickly. There's it's four. Like four. Um, and who knows? There might be more. Like there's, you know, back when I started doing all this, you know, trauma research stuff a few years ago, there was like fight, flight, freeze. And now there's like mm. five of them okay. that I never remember all of them. Um, right. So already my book that I just released a year ago is like slightly wrong, which is what I love about science is that it's just constantly mm. disproving itself and, and revealing more information. But um as far as I know at this moment in time, um, there is anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, disorganized attachment, which is an anxious avoidant combination, um, and secure. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. All right. So go ahead. Sorry. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, in being someone who has pretty disorganized attachment and, um, learning there's a, there's a part in this book and it's actually the part that's written to the anxious attached people. Um, but there's a part that's basically talking about how, you know, a lot of our culture, our Western culture in the United States prizes uh, independence and autonomy. And so therefore we're calling a lot of things that maybe should be labeled dependency, codependency. And Mm. we're prizing ourselves on this detached, dissociated, I'm fine. I don't need anyone like lone wolfing it. That's like kind of the story of, you know, the, (laughs) the American pioneer, just like striking out on his own. Like we really prize this more kind of avoidant style of I don't need anyone or anything. And so a lot of times people who are anxious attached or maybe disorganized and so have the, some expressions of anxious attachment um, can feel like their desire for connection and dependency gets labeled as codependency. Yeah. And this book really simply was like, I mean, I'm probably paraphrasing, but the way it felt when I read it was it's not bad to be dependent. And it felt like someone had just given me the secret code for how to understand myself. And just, again, just this permission of like, Jamie, it's not bad to want to be connected and dependent in relationship because most of my life was trying to fight through this self, or not most of my life, most of my life I was dissociated. And most of my healing has been me trying to fight back on this self-sufficiency story and be free to be dependent. But then there's always that voice in the back of my head that's like, don't become codependent. You don't want to do that. And this book's like, fuck it. Don't worry about that. Just be dependent. Just tell the truth about how much you want connection. That's okay. Yeah, I love that you're saying that because I think culturally there's a lot of like, you know, feminist idea of like, you don't need anyone. Mm -hmm. And like, and I... I had that revelation too where I'm like, you know what? I hate being single actually. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of apologizing for the fact that I just prefer having companionship. Yes. And the moment it's so funny that I like came to that and realized it and actually actively prayed for it. I was at this club called Berghain in Mm -hmm. Berlin. Have you ever been there? Mm -mm. It's incredible. It's incredibly hedonistic if you want it to be. It's open for... An entire week. I think it's open for like 72 hours and you can stay there for 72 hours if you want. Multi-levels. As an introvert, (laughs) no way. I've got like three hours max before I got a piece out of there. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Meanwhile, I went by myself and never wanted to leave. It was like this beautiful adventure. 
And it's like this industrial place. They're playing all this crazy German industrial dark, like heavy music, which is totally my vibe. And I was on the dance, like the specific floor that had an old church, um, like the structure of an old church. I don't know how they'd acquired it. It looked like the wall of a church that had been torn down or something. So it was this huge church window in front of me and some DJ in front of that. And I had this really ecstatic, beautiful experience where all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, I want to be madly in love and I want a child and I want someone to love me and I want to not be single like lone wolfing it through this life anymore because at that time I think I was maybe 33 coming out of a really abusive relationship that sounds very much like yours Mm -hmm. and um and that was just a beautiful profound moment and then I couldn't be talked out of it after then I was like I'm not gonna listen to this like feminist rhetoric of like fuck everybody it's just like no like Mm -hmm. having companionship is beautiful I love men myself like I don't Mm. hate that idea and I think it's important for me to have companionship yeah well that is so I love that you had that moment in that place (laughs) and that you're like after that point I couldn't be talked out of it that's like a deeply spiritually revelatory experience well I love yeah I've spent so many years being guilty about being in spaces like that but even the fact that there was a structure of a church in there so that feels like that's the most quintessential Brenda story it's really perfect yeah I was wearing all black leather yeah it was exactly and then to be sitting here with you (laughs) while you have your baby in your lap is amazing like Mm -hmm. all full circle yeah I think I want to I do want to say about that though too is like I definitely think that there is this idea um so with what you're saying about like, you know, this like feminist idea that we should be like independent and like self-sufficient, I think the most truly feminist idea is that women get to decide what it is that they actually want Amen. Um, yes. outside of external influence or societal pressure or patriarchal influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there definitely is this like internal struggle that, again, I don't know, usually people that are socialized and express themselves as women are the only people who have to deal with this of like, we're told there's like a right and wrong way to be a woman. And I don't, especially as it relates to relationships, I don't, please correct me if I'm wrong folks, but like, I really don't see people who are socialized as men dealing with quite that same thing. There's kind of this underlying expectation of like, Oh, if they're partnered, they must know that that's what they need and want. If they're single and they must know that that's what they need and want. Totally. Yeah. They're given that permission all the time. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, um, a deeply, uh, a deeply patriarchal influence. I was just talking with my friend about this this morning, that there's this expectation in society that like masquerades as chivalry, but is actually misogyny. That's like, Oh, women don't really know what they want and what they need. So that's where you get a lot of this fucking, I don't even want to go down this rabbit hole too much and get off topic. But the idea of like friend zone is just completely garbage. Like men are always like, Oh, should we in the friend zone? Like as if men are entitled to and are owed, like affection from women just for being like nice guys. And yes, that's a, a human experience. Like women do that to men, men do that to all genders, do that to all genders. But the only one we have like a term for is when it's this, and we've like written movies about this idea about when a man's really in love with a woman and she just doesn't see that he's the right one for her and he won't give the fuck up (laughs) or listen to her. And then how does the movie always end at the end? It's written where she wakes up and comes to her senses and look, he was right all along and I hate that. But anyway, now we have incels. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because that's the thing under underneath that idea and that story we're telling ourselves is women need to be told what they want and women need to be told what they need and men know better for them. So bringing this all back to this, like, um, idea that the true, the truest form of feminism is when women get to decide what they want and what they need. And so we need to, 
we need to be celebrating and supporting one another as women with this idea of, um, oh my God, perfect example. Have you ever seen Mona Lisa Smile? Yeah. I love that movie. The moment that um, Julia Stiles has with Julia Roberts, where Julia Roberts is super concerned because this brilliant woman who is maybe going to go to law school, um, I think her name's Joan, she decides to get married. And Jones is essentially her, her, what she says to Julia Roberts character is like, this is what I want. This is how I want. I'm super paraphrasing, but this is how I want to be a woman. And if you've taught me anything, it's that I get to make this decision for myself. Mm -hmm. And this is what I want. I want to be a housewife. I want to be a mother. This isn't because I think I can't be a lawyer. I just don't want to be. And that is so beautiful. And I feel like for a lot of my life, I had to it caused conflict between me and my sister because my sister has only just ever wanted to be a wife and a mother. And I felt like what I needed to do because I, I don't know, needed to like press push back against societal expectations. And in a way was like, uh, almost frame it as if somehow I was a, I was a better or more complete woman than her that, Oh, you're just a product of your conditioning. And how, how rude is that <laughs> for me to think that, and what garbage feminism, what, what a garbage posture masquerading as feminism that I am looking at my sister and saying, again, I'm agreeing with that internalized misogyny of like, you can't possibly know what you want. You're just being influenced by patriarchy. Yeah. No, my sister wanted to be a mother and is a fucking phenomenal mother and derives so much joy from it. It's not mm. the only thing she does. It's not the only aspect of her personhood, but there is definitely this underlying discomfort with my own decisions that until I arrived at a point and she and I've talked about this since where I was like I shoved you away and I judged you because I was uncomfortable and I didn't feel confident in what I was deciding and Mm. sure there's layers to that one of those being I was still participating in the evangelical church that told me that because I don't want to have children there's something biologically and like psychologically incorrect about me I suppose yeah um But so because I was trying to survive inside of an environment that was not treating me well, I was doing a lot of projecting. Sure. And so I think that there's, um, I think our ability to know, again, this is why we go back to agency and our, the permission to, um, discover your own agency and develop a relationship to your own desires and your own wants is so important because it helps us not only be confident in our decisions, but also celebrate the decisions that other people are making. And the last thing women need to be doing is looking at another woman and saying you're womaning the wrong way because we have to deal with that from (laughs) other sources all of the time why not just celebrate each other and trust that you can know what's best for you and I can know what's best for me and if they're two different things that's very okay beautiful I love it and I think the last thing I want to talk about is first of all I'm so glad that we got into different ways of looking at agency that are outside of sexuality because Mm -hmm. I really don't want anyone to think that it's only about that like this is also about how you write an email to an employer that you're trying to get a raise from you know like those are all elements of agency and permission and discovering your worth Mm -hmm. and as you walk through this world um but I would like to end on how all of that will tie into pleasure mm-hmm. as it comes to, you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm. If anyone is battling that, I'm like, if we can condense it to like, mm-hmm. you know, a few minutes, how can we wrap our head around it and tangible steps for people yeah. on that journey? 
I mean, I could super condense it and just tell every single person to read Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. Okay. <laughs> because um, they labored over that book. Mm. And I think also when we're talking about pleasure and particularly, you know, sexual pleasure and how it relates to, um, yeah, that felt in some permission and agency in our bodies. I think the best people to be asking actually are non-white people um, because when you think about the construct of white supremacy and the, um, we keep, I keep overusing the word permission, but whatever, the permission that it has and the framework it's established for, for white people, again, whiteness is a construct, but whatever, but like white people to experience um, survival and thriving and success and how anyone who is non-white does not have the same permission to experience that and the structures have not been built for um, thriving for anyone who is not white. Um, <clears throat> you think about this idea that like pleasure has been an act of deep and sacred resistance for black and brown and indigenous people for as long as white supremacy has been trying to dehumanize them. Um, and so I think that when it comes to figuring out what can our relationship to sexual pleasure look like, or again, any other kind of pleasure look like, um, those people who have had direct experiences with having to center their pleasure in the midst of survival are the people that have the most to teach us. Mm. Um, and the reason why I bring that all up and say all of that is, and in a segue into pointing back to Adrian Marie Brown is that they did such an amazing job, not only writing, that book, but then also bringing in other voices. Um, the book is equally as much their writing. And then also, um, I guess maybe like a combination of essays from other folks as well. Um, and the vast majority of that book centers on the relationship to sexual pleasure to the point where they write in the beginning and the forward, they recommend, um, masturbating before you read every chapter, <laughs> which is brilliant. Wow. And, Speaking from experience, that's the right way to read that book. <laughs> it 1000% is. Um, so yeah, I think I really, and, and, you know, I even, I think I kind of want to even stop what I would have to say there because I think there's an energy to saying like, Hey, you should probably learn about that from black and brown and indigenous people. And then for a white woman to keep talking about it is pretty <laughs> ironic. So, um, go buy pleasure activism. Um, read that book, read the things that the people who are, um, profiled in that book, uh, the other things that they've written, the other things they have to say. Also, uh, uses of the erotic, the erotic is power by Audre Lorde is incredible. You can read it or there's a YouTube video where you can listen to it as well. Um, just black women, just listen to black women <laughs> about pleasure for sure. Yes. Mic drop. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I don't know. Any final thoughts? I'm so glad we did this. I know. This is great. I, I'm like listening to all the ambient noise. I'm like, it sounds like there's a gremlin in the house. <laughs> it also sounds like they're shooting Fast and the Furious outside. I think my neighbor's gotten like a new motorcycle or something. Last time we were doing this, though, we were battling a leaf blower. So I'm really glad we're <laughs> having to do it that again. It was a battle. Yes. It's, yeah. Yeah. But well, thank yeah. you. This was wonderful. Yeah. And we can revisit this again, y'all. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Jamie mm -hmm. keeps coming in and out of town. So mm -hmm. I'm so happy that so many people are approaching this work mm -hmm. from all different perspectives. It's so beautiful that we're living in a day and age where 
you we know we do have access to mm-hmm. other people's perspectives that we would never usually and and also just the humility to be like I know someone else yes. that you know speaks to this really beautifully yeah. because everyone's coming at it from their own beautiful perspective yes. and it's wonderful yeah such a massive awakening happening for all of us mm-hmm. I agree yeah um well let me know what you guys thought about this episode and thank you so much for listening we love you all god bless